Well, good morning. Uh, today is Transfiguration Sunday, and uh, Transfiguration Sunday comes every year, um, uh, right before we head into the season of Lent. Now, uh, all week, as I was thinking about this Sunday, uh, it felt a bit surreal, because um, while Pax's birthday is not for another week, um, the church calendar is kind of funny on its timing, uh, Last year for Transfiguration Sunday, I had my sermon all done, and I even had my PowerPoint done early in the week, and yet I never got to preach that sermon because PAX came a few weeks early. So all week it felt a bit surreal, um, but surprisingly we didn't have a baby this week, so uh, I get to preach on the Transfiguration this year. So um, <laughs> excited for that. So as we get ready to uh, jump in, uh, let's pause for a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to gather together. Um, God, thank you for the gift of technology that in a, a season where connection um, may be hard to come by, that uh, each week we have this gift. And God, we uh, confess this great mystery that um, your spirit is here uh, among us and unites us and connects us and draws us close um, in all of our various homes. And God, we're grateful for that. Now, God, as we turn to the scriptures, um, we acknowledge that presence of your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us and shape us and form us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had uh, an experience that was difficult, if not like impossible, to put into words? Um, it was as if that, that moment or that experience like existed beyond words themselves. Um, that sunset and that particular place and that particular or with those particular people um, or falling in love or maybe uh, that song and that particular season that became like a ballad for you when things were really low and when things were really high. Um, but we recognize that like these moments that exist beyond words aren't just like these euphoric moments, but also range the full gamut of human emotion and um, maybe can even s slip into hearing um, that diagnosis or the words that I'm done, I'm leaving. Uh, or maybe a moment where you've worked up all of the courage within you to send that email with that presentation or that pitch or that text to that person only to be ghosted and to never hear from them again. We all have these uh, moments and experiences in life that um, seemingly seem to exist beyond words. And I think the reason why we have these, these moments and experiences that exist beyond words are because, well, if you haven't discovered yet, we human beings are complicated creatures. <laughs> and uh, we're not like one-dimensional sort of creatures, but we have these various dimensions and these various layers within us. And so we have our minds, right? And like, I'll acknowledge, like we live in a very mind-dominated uh, culture. I have a very mind-dominated perspective on life. But when things uh, speak and, and step into our minds, what we want to do is we want to like think about them. We want to process them. We want to describe, we want to define them. We want to think about them in an analytical sort of way and make sense of them. But, we but we're more than just a mind, right? 
we also have a, a soul. We also have like a, a spirit level layer dimension to us. And there are these moments and experiences that uh, step beyond the mind and step into our soul and into our spirit. And when things touch our spirit and our soul, we do something very different than think or process or define or describe them. But instead, we, we feel them. We discern them. We allow them to like shape and form us. And rather than like using our analytical mind and trying trying to make sense of them, we tend to like sit with like curiosity and wonder and sit with the mystery of it all. See, we have these moments and experiences throughout our life that just simply exist beyond words, and yet we recognize that they have the capacity to shape and form us in profound ways. Um, the, the Gospel of Mark tells of one of these stories of the, the disciples of Jesus who uh, have one of these moments and experiences uh, with Jesus that seems to exist beyond words. And that's the story of the transfiguration. Um, like M Michelle read earlier, it comes from uh, Mark chapter 9. Um, but it's helpful for us uh, to recognize what happens uh, in the context surrounding it. So what happens before the story of the transfiguration, what happens after the story of the transfiguration. So immediately preceding the transfiguration in uh, the Gospel of Mark, um, Jesus is with, uh, his dis with his disciples. And uh, Jesus, who's been like in some sort of public ministry for a while now, begin wants to like get a feel for what's happening. And so he asks his disciples, like, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples offer up some suggestions. And then Jesus takes it a bit more personal. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's like the emerging right-hand man for Jesus, uh, steps up and like courageously says, like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been hoping for, that we've been longing for, that we've been praying for. You're the one who's coming to bring about the redemption, the restoration, the wholeness of all things. And you can imagine that in that moment, like, Peter's feeling, like, pretty elated. Maybe, like, you know, like, he, he did it, right? Like, he finally said the thing that was on his mind. Only for that elation to come crashing down just a few verses later. Because then Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And here's what that means. Like, it means that I'm going to be, like, heading towards Jerusalem. And it means that it involves death. And it means that it involves resurrection. And Peter, uh, you know, still feeling a little courageous, is like, no, no, no. That's not how this story goes. <laughs> Only for Jesus to turn and say, get behind me, Satan. Which, you know... I don't want anybody to call me Satan, but especially not the son of God, right? Now, right after the story, we come to the transfiguration. But immediately after the transfiguration, there's this shift in Jesus. And uh, other gospels tell us that he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And there's like this shift in the, the, the tone of the story as a whole as Jesus begins to head to Jerusalem for the last time, heading into the holy city where he'll ultimately be met by his crucifixion and even more ultimately his resurrection. Scholars will say that there's uh, like two halves to the book of Mark. There's the, the describing the who of Jesus in the first half and the displaying of the what of Jesus in the second half. And what sits in the middle is the story of the transfiguration. Meaning like the story sits as like this, this liminal space, this transition point, this hinge 
of the gospel as a whole, and everything kind of sits around and revolves around this particular story right here. So Mark tells the story this way. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. He says, uh, six days later, so six days after this like revelation and rebuke of Peter, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. Now, recognize that, that Mark here has just like given us a big wink about what's to happen here because he tells us that they're heading up a mountain. Now, all throughout the scriptures, we see stories uh, of people heading up a mountain to have some sort of profound uh, uh, divine revelation from God, some sort of profound experience with God. Whenever we read of a story on a mountain, it should be a big red flag that something is about to go down, that there's going to be some sort of experience that will shape and form the people that are involved in the story in a profound way. So Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus, head up a mountain, and then Jesus was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So it's safe to say that this is, you know, uh, a strange and peculiar story, right? <laughs> Jesus heads up a mountain uh, with, his, uh, with Peter, James, and John, like his, his inner circle, his squad, his posse, if you will. And we're told like, to be expectant of some sort of divine encounter, some sort of divine revelation. And boy, do we get that, right? <laughs> because what they're confronted with here are Elijah and Moses. Now, if the Jewish people were to uh, construct some sort of like Mount Rushmore of major figures uh, in their history, like... Elijah and Moses would certainly be towards the top of that list, right? And what we have with Moses and Elijah are these like major figures within the story of the Jewish people as a whole. We have at the, towards the very beginning of the story, we have Moses, the lawgiver, the one who gives the law from God, who gives the commandments, who gives the structure, who gives the organizing principle of what it means to be part of the people of God. We have Moses who's describing how we are to respond to the goodness that we've seen from God. And then the story continues to unfold, and then we eventually get to Elijah, who's uh, one of like the great prophets, one of the great mouthpieces of God, who speaks on behalf of God to the people. And as the story unfolds, Elijah gets linked with the coming of the Messiah, the one who will come and bring about the restoration, the redemption, the wholeness of all things. And so here we have Peter, James, and John, two good first century Jewish men, or yeah, these uh, good, good first century Jewish men, and they're looking at Moses and Elijah, and now with them, Jesus, who they've confessed to be the Messiah. See, I think for them in that moment, what they're seeing here is that Jesus is the natural, uh, the natural flow of the story. 
that Jesus is the natural outcome of the story, that the story as a whole has always been heading towards Jesus, that Jesus, while he brings all of this newness, like it's, it, it exists within this continuity of the, the story of God from the very beginning. And as these uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John, are sitting there, probably with these questions of like, is Jesus who he really says he is? These holy figures appear almost to like give their approval of Jesus. I think uh, for Cleveland Browns fans, they're having similar questions right now, similar discussions, right, around uh, this would-be quarterback of Baker Mayfield, right? Uh, And I think questions are like, is he the one, right? Is is he the guy? Is he the one to bring us, dare I say, to the promised land, right? And it would be like if you're sitting around with your buddies having this conversation uh, about Baker Mayfield and is he the one, and out of nowhere appears Jim Brown and Bernie Kosar and Marion Motley, and they say, he is who he says he is. He's the one. And it's as if like these legendary figures are like tipping their caps saying, like, Baker's the guy. <laughs> now, on a much more substantial and much more significant scale, right, I think this is what we have with Elijah and Moses. It's them approving, giving their approval of Jesus, tipping their cap, saying, like, he is the one. Now, uh, there's one particular detail in the story uh, that's really stood out to me this year as we, we come to the story again. And that's the use of one particular word. And that's the word transfigured. Um, now, this word gets translated from the Greek word uh, uh, that can be translated into the English as metamorphosis, which means that like it could get translated as like transfigured, which it does get translated as, or a much more common word, transformation. Now, why did uh, now why in most uh, major translations of the Bible did the translators choose the word transfigured rather than transformed? Well, think about the connotations of these two words, right? transfigured, meaning like the figure was changed, right? Like the outward appearance of something was changed, that, that the, the, outer, the outerness of something has been transformed, if you will. But with transfigured, we're talking about a, a figure, uh, or transformed, we're talking about a form being changed. We're talking about the very thingness of it, like from the very core of it being shaped and formed into something new. So why did translators pick the word transfigured rather than transformed? Well, it seems as though they recognize that, that Jesus is God in flesh, <laughs> that Jesus is the fullness of who God is in human form, and that this, this, this Jesus, the fullness of God, did not need to be transform, transformed in some way, right? Like he was the fullness of God, but rather maybe those following him didn't see it. And so what we have with the transfiguration is it's almost as if a curtain or a veil is pulled back. And the disciples are now seeing the reality of Jesus, who he truly and fully is. They're seeing the the glory of God on full display, the grace and the peace and the love of God on full display. And the best that they can describe it is like the sun was shining on his clothes. (laughs) See, I think the story of the transfiguration was not for the sake of Jesus, but for the sake of his disciples. 
And I think the voice that they heard confirms this because the voice wasn't directed to Jesus saying, you are my son, the beloved. But it was directed to the disciples saying, this is my son, the beloved. So it's a strange, peculiar story. Um, it seems like a story of like profound, like spiritual, soulish level experience, right? And it seems as though like it exists beyond words and it seems as though like this is their best attempt to put this strange and peculiar story into words. And I think that this can lead us into a helpful insight of how maybe to best approach a story like this. And I think that is um, that the, the transfiguration is a story not to be comprehended, but a story to be contemplated. But the transfiguration is not a story to be comprehended, but a story to be contemplated. And what I mean by that is this is a story that exists beyond words. It's a story that, that moves beyond our minds. It's a story that is almost impossible for us to think and process and define and describe. And it seems as though it's a story begging to move beyond an analytical approach of making sense of it and moving into a place of feeling it, of discerning it of being shaped and formed by it, to sit with curiosity and wonder and mystery of what is happening in this story. And I think that something mysterious, dare I say divine, happens if we can sit with this story not in a, an attempt to comprehend it, but in, a, in an attempt to contemplate it. And I think that's um, when we contemplate the transfigured Jesus, this leads to our own transformation. <laughs> that when we see the Jesus who is on full display, the glory, the grace, the peace, the love of God being truly and fully revealed for who he is and what it is, um, that, that leads to our own sort of being shaped and formed and transformed through that experience. In some ways, I think it's like a, a spiritual after image. Um, are you familiar with the term after image? If you're not, uh, I guarantee almost all of us have experienced this. Um, uh, an after image is the, the thing that happens when you look at a, a dark image on a light background or a light image on a dark background, something with a contrasting um, uh, sort of coloration. Uh, or like if you look at a light bulb exposed, right? And you look away and you still see that image or that light bulb. What happens in a, an after image is that there's some sort of like photochemical reaction happening in our retina that convinces our retina that we're still seeing that image when we look away. And I think uh, in some ways the transfiguration can act as like a spiritual after image for us. Meaning like it, it's a photochemical reaction not just in our retina but like deep within us in our soul and in our spirit. And the result of that is as we look beyond the transfigured Jesus we begin to see Jesus in everything and in every one. As we contemplate on the transfigured Jesus, it leads to our transformation. And we begin to see Jesus in everything and every one. We see Jesus in our loved ones. We see Jesus in our neighbors. We see Jesus in our coworkers. We see Jesus even in our enemies. And in certain seasons of our life, maybe most difficult or most in the most difficult way, we see Jesus in ourselves. Now the best that I can deduce as I look at the scriptures is that like this is kind of the goal 
of following Jesus, right? <laughs> that we begin to see Jesus in everything and everyone. And this seems to be a really good indicator of our, our capacity to walk in the way of Jesus. Now, there's one last question uh, about this story that um, has stuck with me uh, over the last few weeks. And that's the question of why in this moment? Like, why this story right here? Um, why this story in Mark? Why this story uh, in the, the church calendar as a whole? Again, the story comes every year right before Lent. Well, I think part of the answer to that question is, again, like the story in Mark comes at this transition point, right? Um, it comes in this liminal space. It comes in this in-between where the disciples find themselves like not quite who they were, but not quite who they will be. They're no longer where they were, but they're, no longer, but they're not quite where they will be. And I think the same can be said about the season of Lent. Like, like this Sunday right here sits in this liminal space between like the hubbub of Christmas and Epiphany, but not quite Lent. And we find ourselves in this liminal space. And so for the disciples, uh, so for the, the Gospel of Mark, as we ask this question of why in this moment, I think it has everything to do with this liminal space. The disciples themselves aren't who they were before they encountered Jesus but they're not quite who they will be after the resurrection of Jesus. They find themselves with this choice of like, do we turn back and go back to who we were? Or do we press forward into who we are invited to become? And I think this profound experience of the transfiguration is meant to like give them this, this strength the strength and encouragement to move forward in this journey, a journey that's going to be filled with all sorts of conflict and confrontation as they journey with Jesus to his cross. And I think the, the question of why in this moment for us is actually the same. We find ourselves in this in-between. We're not who we were before Easter, before Epiphany, but we're not quite who we will be on the other side of Lent either. We have this choice of do we go back to who we were or do we push forward in this journey of who we are being invited to become. And I think the transfiguration can give us the strength and the encouragement to press forward into this journey of Lent, which is a season of like this inward turning of like looking at ourselves, asking questions of our motivations, our, our perspective, the way that we think about things, the behaviors, the patterns that we have. And if you've ever like begun to do work on your shadow, like there's all sorts of conflict and confrontation with that. And I think this can be that, that strength and encouragement to push forward into that journey um, uh, to do that good work. And so I wonder if uh, this year, as we head into Lent, what would happen if we sat with the transfigured Jesus? Not like trying to comprehend the story, not trying to like, slip into an analytical mind making sense of it all but what would happen if like we contemplated on the transfigured Jesus sat with wonder and curiosity and the mystery of it all I wonder if it would leave a spiritual after image on our soul and as we head into the season if we would begin to see Jesus in all the areas of our inward life as we begin to examine it 
And as we think about our motivations, our behaviors, the patterns, the rhythms of our life, the way that we think about certain people or maybe even ourselves, we would see Jesus next to those things. And maybe we would begin to see the ways in which the shadows within our life don't quite live up to this invitation of what God is inviting us into, into the fullness of life in Jesus. But as we see this, this after image, it's not like to, to heap guilt or condemnation on us. But it's a reminder that even in the places of our life that fall short, that God in flesh and Jesus is there with us. And as we take this journey towards wholeness, towards restoration, towards redemption, it's not a journey we do on our own, but that God in flesh and Jesus is there journeying with us. And so um, my prayer for us at the beginning, uh, or as we head into the season of Lent, is that we would sit with Jesus. Sit with the transfigured Jesus, not trying to comprehend it, but contemplating on it and him and allowing it to leave its mark on our soul, on our spirit, and allowing us to see Jesus in everything and everyone. And in the process, be transformed more and more and more by the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for um, stories like that of the transfiguration these moments and experiences that exist beyond words that, that, want to, that want to speak into our soul and into our spirit. God, we give you thanks that um, it can offer us strength and encouragement for the journey ahead. And God, I pray that as we contemplate on the transfigured Jesus, that your spirit would be transforming us and shaping us and forming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that we would identify the, the shadow places in our life and do the, the good work of turning more and more towards the way of Jesus. So Spirit, we ask that in the season of Lent that you would draw near to us and bring about the healing and the wholeness that Jesus came to offer us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.